Good evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Nabil Biagio on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Tuesday, February 7, 27, 2024. The U.S. has named a new special envoy for Sudan. With this appointment, I think the U.S. is elevating its desire to be a broker that can, you know, attain peace uh, for the ongoing hostilities in Sudan. And officials in Nasser County in Upper Nile State assure residents of improved security. Civilians start coming back. Even start from yesterday, they come with their cattle, children. Up to today, they're moving to a town. We will have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. The United States appointed a new special envoy for Sudan on Monday as Washington seeks to bring an end to a conflict that has wrecked parts of the country and killed tens of thousands of people. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced that former diplomat and U.S. Member of Congress Tom Perello will assume the special envoy role as the U.S. seeks to bring increased focus to the conflict after the failure of talks so far. In a statement, Perello said he will build on efforts of partners across Africa and the Middle East to bring an end to the conflict, a humanitarian crisis and atrocities. Brian Adeba is the Deputy Director of Policy at the investigative group The Sentry. He tells VOS James Butty that Periolo's appointment prioritizes the prospect for peace in Sudan. I think it means the prioritization of uh, efforts to find a peaceful resolution to the conflict. With this appointment, I think the U.S. is elevating its desire to be a broker that can you know, attain peace uh, for the ongoing hostilities in Sudan. And more importantly, the appointment of someone who's solely dedicated to pursuing negotiations with the stakeholders in the Sudanese conflict, that means the possibility of, you know, stemming the humanitarian disaster that is unfolding in Sudan right now uh, is lessened a bit, um, that the possibility of getting food aid and helping destitute people, that chance is now uh, more pronounced than it was yesterday without the envoy's uh, appointment. So, uh, Brian, as you know, there have been several attempts to bring peace or to reach some kind of a settlement in the fighting. What difference would it make if somebody would ask you that? Well, you know, um, previously, you know, the peace negotiations were under the Secretary of African Affairs, the uh, the State Department, and that is a huge portfolio. Um, That person, like, holds a huge portfolio involving many countries in Africa. And there was no one solely dedicated to working with the parties to the conflict in Sudan. This appointment, not to denigrate or not to say that what previous efforts were not, one not good, but having one person solely dedicated 100% to um, pursuing peace and talking to the conflicts in South Sudan makes a lot more difference than someone who um, who is not dedicated completely to it because of other priorities on their plate. This prioritization of placing one person at the center to be in charge of uh, negotiations, to be in charge of talks and outreach to stakeholders in the Sudanese conflict, I think makes a big difference. Comment on what I'm just reading, uh, Yasser Amar is calling for stopping the war 
in Sudan during the uh, holy month of Ramadan? Is it possible? I think from a humanitarian perspective, um, if the parties to the conflict can heed it, that that is possible. But I think that when you look at the conflict dynamics on the ground, uh, the way the conflict has evolved recently and taking into consideration especially the gains made by the Sudanese armed forces in uh, areas that they were previously um, besieged in, in Khartoum, uh, around Omdurman, around uh, the neighborhoods of uh, Kaduru in uh, in Bahri, which is uh, in Khartoum North. With those gains, I think it's going to harden their stance uh, towards um, agreeing to a ceasefire to lessen the, the burden on their suffering civilians in, in Sudan. That's Brian Adeva, Deputy Director of Policy at the investigative group The Century. He spoke with my colleague James Batty here in Washington. The U.S. Ambassador to Sudan, John Guthrie, has left his role, Blinken said in a statement yesterday. Daniel Robinstein will serve as interim chartered affairs and director of the Office of Sudan Affairs. He will be based in Ethiopia. And we go to Upper Nile State, where civilians are returning to Nasser County more than two weeks after the army and civilians clash over a fishing site. State officials are assuring people they will be protected from conflict. Mamer Abraham Court reports for VOA from Malakal. People have returned to Nasser town after the army and the civilians agreed not to fight again. Fighting erupted in Nasser County last month between the army and the civilians over a fishing site, leaving scores of civilians and soldiers dead. Many residents fled to nearby Payams. Nasser County officials said many elderly and children were feared to have drowned in River Sobat. There was also a conflict in Longachuk County and fighting at Kuburlul, which caused new fear that insecurity is returning to Upper Nile State. Last November, the national government deployed 750 unified forces to Malakal in Upper Nile State to boost security. The unified forces were deployed in Tonga and Ren counties, leaving other counties being secured by untrained forces. Nasser County resident Neal Garquot says fighters in the local militia known as the White Army have returned to their villages. The army has gone back to the barracks and civilians are returning to Nasser town. Civilians have started coming back. Even we start from yesterday, they came with their cattle, children, up to today they are moving to a town. The mission that came from Juba to see the situation in the ground they come to this commissioner with their wireman. They also go to where military barracks. They talk a lot. And finally, it was said that there's no fighting that will be happen again. And even the soldiers, they say, no, it's not our plan because it's not all the soldiers who plan to fight with civilians. There's some element within the barracks. Nial says the national government should deploy the fully trained unified forces in Nasser instead of posting troops there who have not been graduated from training. Civilians will not believe military 100%. This government still don't want civilians to live in a peace in the country. We are supposed to deploy all the unified force that was trained. Because we were trained to, to monitor the peace. But up to now, we don't want to, to deploy those forces. This government force who previously fight was a tribal soldier. They don't know what we call human rights. But this unified force was a human right because we were trained for almost three years. And they were taught a lot that we are not a tribal soldier. Jikang Gang is the police inspector in Nasir County. 
He says the army and civilians have agreed to end the fighting. Gang says the community wrote a letter requesting the removal of untrained soldiers. He sent the letter to the state government for consideration. So far, he says, the National Commission for Monitoring Peace in the country, known as Citizen VM, has taken no action. We make an agreement to people cannot fight again. So the commander now is back to the barracks. So the solution is still ignoble. Uh, the citizen did not give us the feedback, but he said the community officer did write the letter for the changing this soldiers. Uh, I give I give the letter also from the community. So I, uh, I started and I, yeah, I sent it to them. Gang says there will be no more fighting in Nasir because the army realized its mistake. No one can uh, make the war again. And also those of the soldiers also they apologize. They say it is uh, our mistake, not the community mistake. Luke Sadala, the Upper Nile State's Minister of Information, says the state and county officials are spreading messages of peace to head off future conflicts. Bashar al في مشاكل كان أصل في مغادرة ناصر. Last month, a conflict erupted in Nasir and Longitu counties. The state government, especially the governor and deputy governor, went for a peace rally in my wood. They will go to Longitu by road from my wood to investigate what happened in Longitu. And we hope that when they arrive there, we shall get an update on the situation in Sadala argues that conflict should not be viewed through tribal lenses. He says it should be seen as an individual issue and the law should be given the chance to take its course. He urges South Sudanese war in Ethiopia and Sudan not to fear insecurity in Upper Nile and to return home and says state government will watch for their safety. One of us yesterday said in Akoka that we should not say that this tribe killed the other tribe. If we say this tribe killed a person, is it the whole tribe that killed a person? It was an individual. And if you understand it this way, then we shall follow it up by the law. And if we abide by the law, no conflict will happen again. We assure them that no conflict will happen because we know the disadvantages of conflict and now we know the advantages of peace. The civilians should be informed that no conflict will happen again. Sadala adds that the people of Akoka and Fashoda counties who recently clashed are now living in peace. He says the state officials are also managing the issue of gangs in Malakal town to ensure residents are safe. For VOA News, I am Amer Abramquad in Malakal. Yambio town residents in South Sudan's western Equatorial state say some communities on the outskirts of town didn't get yellow fever shots during a recent vaccination campaign. They say people living in more distant villages must walk to a vaccination center to get the shots, but once they got there, no vaccines were available. Viola Elias has this report for VOA from Juba. Yambio town resident Mijafa David says although most people in Yambio turn up during the yellow fever vaccination campaign last week, many people living farther away did not receive the shot. They are coming, but currently it's like they have stopped the vaccine. 
because I don't see it again. So there is no vaccine now, they can say. It's like the energy vaccine come in, so there is no vaccine. What I can tell you is the majority of the vaccination, but I don't think that everyone or every community has the access to the vaccine. I mean, went for the, the vaccination because there are many also in this community. It's like uh, people were not uh, vaccinated at all. Banga for Justin. Another Yambio resident says most people in the three counties of Yambio and Zara and Tombora in Western Equatoria State welcomed the yellow fever vaccines. Justin says he and his family were vaccinated during the campaign and have not experienced any side effects. I was among the people who first who, who, who took it the, the, the very the very day when it was drawn, and other colleagues of mine also they, they took the, the vaccination. Even the, all my family members also took it. Up to now, I've not had any complaints from anybody about the reaction or anything uh, concerning the vaccination. I think uh, people people took the vaccine and there is no much uh, reaction on it. Western Equatorial State Minister of Health, James. Abdullah says thousands of people got vaccinated against yellow fever after an outbreak last December. He says at least five people have been infected with the viral disease. The two cases, I'm sure uh, their situation is good because there's no any report from the center regarding the two uh, confirmed uh, people that had been admitted. Uh, for example, there were five people which was admitted. Uh, three was already released and remained two and two also is near to go. Dr. Motale Nakashalo leads the World Health Organization team for universal health coverage for communicable and non-communicable diseases. She says the WHO and the Ministry of Health are responding to the recent outbreak in Western Equatoria. Yellow fever is an acute viral hemorrhagic disease transmitted by infected mosquitoes and poses a significant public health threat. Dr. Nekashalo urges the public to be on the lookout for yellow fever symptoms and to immediately visit a health center if they have them. So with yellow fever, um, it usually mimics some of the symptoms in malaria. And then one peculiar thing about yellow fever is the yellowing of the eyes. You see that the white part of the eye starts appearing yellow. And um, if that is not managed, it can actually progress into more severe... uh... Dr. Nikashalo says... WHO and the Ministry of Health plan to vaccinate about 610,000 people in Yambio, Tombora, Ezo, Iba and Meridi during the campaign. Nikashalo says a single dose of vaccine is very effective in protecting against disease. She also urges people to ignore rumors the vaccine causes infertility. And uh, you always receive it once and you receive lifelong protection. Uh, another thing I would want to advise or urge the community is to make sure that they um, go to the facilities. They should not shun away from it. Because I know um, in some communities they've been saying that when you receive uh, the vaccine, it might affect your fertility, you may not have children. But all that is just, um, they're just misconception. I am one example of a person that actually received uh, my vaccine way before I even started a family, and I am already a mother of um, three. South Sudan last yellow fever outbreak was in November 2018 in Sakuri Payam and Zara County in what was then known as Budue State, and it's now Western Equatorial State. For VOA News, 
I am Viola Elias reporting from Juba. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, the economic community of West African states ECOWAS has lifted economic sanctions imposed on some of its members. Find out more after this break. of South Sudan in focus, we have an exciting new segment dubbed Words of Wisdom. We want to hear your thoughtful proverbs that echo through your community. This is another chance for you to share wisdom from your roots. All you need to do is record a proverb in a language of your choice, tell us its English translation and what it means. Keep it brief, authentic, and represent your community. Your recorded proverb shall be sampled on South Sudan in Focus every Wednesday. Send your recording via our WhatsApp number, plus one, two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. That is plus one, two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Health officials in Uganda say they are concerned about a decline in condom use and worry it will hamper the fight against HIV AIDS. Reporter Mugumi Devs Rakarinj has more from Kampala. Kampala resident Nathan Serunjoji says he has contracted sexually transmitted diseases because he did not use condoms. Sometimes I went in into with ladies who are affected and they also affected me. I got diseases like gonorrhea. I got a lot of pain. I couldn't go for work some days. I could remain in my bed feeling a lot of pain. So things were not good for me. A community social worker advised Lunjoji to test for STDs and to use condoms. He says has not gotten an STD since. Social worker Wingabire Rose says Serunjoji's case is all too common. She says one reason some people do not regularly use condoms is the variability of antiretroviral drugs or ARVs used to treat HIV infections. They do not want to use condom because they feel that the condom does not give them the real sexual pleasure. When we go to some communities or places, people think like, you know, actually the availability of drugs, like make them feel that they are safe. They're like, even if I get HIV, I'll go and get treatment. Antiretroviral drugs do not cure HIV, but when properly used, the drugs help lower infected persons by load, fight infections, and thus improve quality of life. Over the years, use of condoms during risky sexual encounters has remained low in Uganda. Risky sexual encounters are behaviors with higher chances of contracting an STD, such as working in the sex industry and having multiple partners. For example, in 2017, a Minister of Health survey showed only 58% of married men between the age of 15 and 49 years used condoms during a risky sexual encounter and only up to 7% of women in the same age category do. Dr. Dan Biamukama heads the HIV Prevention Department at Uganda AIDS Commission. Those who used condom, the number reduced from, for example, 57% in 2017 to 
in 2016 to 37% in 2020 among men. The number has dropped from 37% in 2016 to 26% among women. So which is a significant drop in behavior, yet we see the number of those engaging in high-risk sexual behavior that may result in HIV transmission is increasing. According to the World Health Organization, consistent and correct use of condoms are highly effective in preventing the transmission of HIV and other STDs. Condoms play a significant role in reducing AIDS around the world. The WHO says at least 117 million infections have been prevented by the use of condoms since 1990. The says condoms also play an important role in preventing unwanted pregnancies, especially among young people. We believe a condom remains a key pillar to fighting the HIV epidemic. We would want to see uh, the condom supported mainly by key leaders of communities, including religious uh, communities, religious leaders and political leaders, so that those who would want to benefit from the condom for family planning and for HIV prevention can freely access it without stigma, which is currently a key barrier to accessing this tool. The WHO says at least 374 million people contracted an STD in 2020. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rakaingini Kampala, Uganda. The Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, has lifted the economic sanctions imposed on the ruling military juntas in Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso. The decision followed long hours of deliberations by the regional leaders at an extraordinary summit on the political peace and security situation in the sub-region. President of the ECOWAS Commission, Dr. Omar Toray, said the move was based on humanitarian considerations due to Lent in the approaching month of Ramadan. David Monda, professor of political science at City University of New York, discussed this decision with VOA senior analyst Mohammed Ashanawi. While I am sympathetic for the economic and humanitarian concerns for the civilians facing a lot of these sanctions, I think the decision by ECOWAS really raises more problems than it solves because it would appear that the lifting of these sanctions is actually a reward for military regimes using extra constitutional means to take over power. I think, secondly, it also goes against the Africa AU Charter and a whole range framework of how Africa should be governed and governed democratically around the Africa peace and security infrastructure, the African governance infrastructure, but more so around the Lome Declaration, which chastised and condemned these uh, military coups and extra constitutional means of taking over power. So it's really a mixed bag, but it's very disappointing to see that the regional economic community, ECOWAS, which has a lot of military and economic power on these landlocked countries did not do enough to restore democracy, to restore the authority of the people, but also to reward military regimes that are engaged in bad behavior in toppling democratic government. The sanctions were originally imposed as a punishment for military coups or power grabs, threatening constitutional democracy in these countries. What message would lifting the sanctions now 
sent to the spat of coups in the African continent. I think lifting of sanctions now actually empowers anti-democratic forces. It empowers regimes or military officers in other countries that might be thinking about taking over government through extra-constitutional means. Let's not forget that part of the reason these sanctions have been removed is because of the division within ECOWAS. There was no unanimity in terms of the imposition or removal of these sanctions. I think secondly, the other problem was even within ECOWAS, there are members like Nigeria, which share very close historical and familial ties with other communities across the border, say in Niger. So Nigeria is a very big Muslim community. And I think Tinobu, as head of Nigeria, as head of the largest and most powerful member of ECOWAS, that could have intervened to actually change things with dealing with these military governments taking over power. I think he's also catering to a domestic constituency that's sympathetic to the Nigerians and also to some of the other military regimes in the Sahel that with which Nigeria shares both historical, ethnic and religious consanguinity. Among the concerns that Ecuador had was a security threat that the coup leaders added to Africa by relying on Russian mercenaries and pulling out of ECOWAS membership. Would the ECOWAS call for dialogue with coup leaders remove such concerns? No, I think not. I think dialogue also has to come with consequences. A credible threat to the military leaders who took over power undemocratically, to them reneging on handing back power to civilian authority. But I might also add, we are in a bit of a dilemma here because I believe there might be a fear within ECOWAS that these countries in the Sahel had begun taking themselves out of the ECOWAS system. So they might also have part of the reason with the reneging on these sanctions might have been that other ECOWAS members who might feel the organizations interfering in their internal affairs might also pull away. I also think there's the other factor you mentioned in terms of non-state actors. And here we think of groups like the Wagner Group, proxies of nation states that act within the region. There might also have been this credible fear that if sanctions continue to be imposed, if these Sahelian countries can continue to suffer economic decline because of the sanctions, that external threats, say, from the Tuareg rebels from the Sahara would actually make the security situation in these countries worse and would then lead them to uh, rely more on groups like the Wagner Group, these non-state actors. So it, it's a very complicated set of uh, circumstances, but I, I really believe that uh, if Africa's to go forward, you know, we really need to strengthening the diplomatic infrastructure of the continent and Africa really sticking by its it norms around governance and around constitutional governance because uh, we cannot continue to have these extra constitutional means of leaders taking over power and not wanting to hand power back to the people through their representatives. That's David Monda, professor of political science at City University of New York. He was speaking with my colleague James Batty. Hello, listener of South Sudan in Focus. We have an exciting new segment dubbed Words of Wisdom. We want to hear your thoughtful proverbs that echo through your community. This is another chance for you to share wisdom from your roots. 
All you need to do is record a proverb in a language of your choice, tell us its English translation and what it means. Keep it brief, authentic and represent your community. Your recorded proverb shall be sampled on South Sudan in Focus every Wednesday. Send your recording via our WhatsApp number, plus one, two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. That is plus one, two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. And that's all we prepared for you this Tuesday, February 27, 2024. We now leave you with Emmanuel Jal in the song War Child. I believe I've survived for a reason to tell my story to touch lives. I believe I've survived for a reason to tell my story to touch lives. People struggling down there. Storms only come for a while, then after a while, they'll be gone. Bless. Bless. My father was working for the government as a policeman. A few years later, I heard he joined a rebel movement that was formed to fight for freedom. I didn't understand the politics behind all this because I was only a child. After a while, I saw the tension rising high between the Christian and the Muslim regime. We lost our possession. My mother's, my mother's mother suffered depression. And because of this, I was forced to be a war child. We've been listening to Emmanuel Jal in the song War Child. I'm your host, Nabil Biagio in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Kwame Ofor, and engineer, Cornelius Tanner, thanks for letting us into your cars, homes, and on your phones. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Born a leader's one, I wonder why. Now I thought I could have wanna die. I couldn't move to when you're not care. Our shame is everywhere. In our pain, what one I care?